When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We've got science to celebrate! Demons bliss out! Octopus, let me come on! There's rebellion in the wind. It'll be Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur blockers? Don't like to put those here to test our faith. That damn lie, I, I saw him on my own eye! Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did in illusions, man! None of it is true! I'm not insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. <laughs> so, this is a deep share, strange neighborhood joint uh, project here, I guess you could call it. How's it going, Kalen? Great. How are you, Andy? Very good. Very good. And very so, good. Uh, I've been researching. Uh, this guy, Lawrence Gardner, this, well, should I say Sir Lawrence Gardner and uh, a number of other authors in this area, but mainly Lawrence Gardner. And uh, yeah, we decided to do a book report on Realm of the Ring Lords by Sir Lawrence Gardner. And I think it's important to read his full title. I don't know if you've read his full title, but it's yeah. yeah I'm, what sure a, I'm like, well, I was having to like look up parts of it to be like, what does this fucking mean? Oh, that means night or whatever. Like, I, <laughs> it's a lot. And you can actually like find an interview with him explaining some of these titles as well, and uh, you know, especially the dragon court situation because that aspect, like his talk about it, is very interesting. He talks about being approached by this dragon court and everything and then you learn about nicholas devere and it's like what so we'll have to get into some of that here and there but his full title let's just do his, this little about the author lawrence gardner is an internationally known sovereign genealogist and historical lecturer distinguished as the cavalier lebron de saint germain he is presidential attache to the european council of princes a constitutional advisory body established in 1946 he is also prior of the sacred kindred of saint columba a Knight Templar of St. Anthony, a fellow of the Society of Antiquar and Antiquaries of Scotland, and attaché to the Grand Protectorate 
of the Imperial Dragon Court, 1408. Formally attached to the noble order of the Guard of St. Germain, founded by King James VII of Scots, 1692, ratified by King Louis XIV of France. He is the appointed Jacobite histori his historiographer royal. Boom. Crazy, like, hey? That is one hell of a title. So can I just say something? Like, is he... I don't want to give away like the whole what we're going to talk about, but like, is he part of the bloodline or like what? <laughs> because I don't quite know yet. That's what I'm, I'm like. Hmm. I don't know. Like, I'm sort of speculating that now. What happened for me was that I started looking into that and then I got super sidetracked by Nicholas Devere. And I've heard the name Nicholas Devere over the years. And I know these books are out there, so maybe some of our listeners already know about these books, but, you know, this is news to me. Lawrence Gardner basically took the information that uh, he learned through this dragon court uh, connection and put out this, helped him a, a great deal on this book. This was one of his latest, if not his, this wasn't his last, but it was one of his last books. He's been gone yeah. since 2010, I believe. I think he had like one that released right as he died or around then, and then one right quickly after or something that were after this book. Right. Is that right? Am I right? I believe so. Yeah. We can get the titles of those at some points as well. Um, speak. I was really lucky enough to speak to his wife, Angela, and it was really great to make that connection and kind of hear her perspective on some things. Um I guess they had a, quite a deal of like kind of some bullshit runaround go, going on here in the States with like the publishing aspect of a number of his books. And that's why, you know, he's not as widespread here in America. And, you know, when I bring this guy up, not a lot of people have really heard of him right offhand. I honestly but, didn't know anything about him. And I thought I was like, I thought it had something to do with Lord of the Rings, but like, I trust you. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> like, I know that you have like a good perspective, but I was like, this seems weird, but right. I'm sure when I look into it, I'll be like super interested. Right. <laughs> and what have you found so far? Have you been super interested so far? Oh my God. It's, it's so crazy. So we just read like the preface and like chapter one and two. Well, I don't know. Annie's probably read a lot more, but that's what I've read because I've honestly read them like three times now because there's just like so many little tangents I went on and like just things that have piqued my interest in little ways that I have to learn more about. And so I keep going back and reading and getting more and more, but wow, it's really mind blowing actually. And that's kind of why I wanted you to join me on this little journey, because I really appreciate the the angles you take and the dedication to the research you do. You really go that extra mile and you're always you took notes for this and everything like you're ready, you know, and I knew that was going to happen. So I think this will be really enlightening for both of us with the different things that we've been looking into over the past couple of years, you know. This will it this will be cool. also seems like we both kind of took different tangents already. Probably like we talked about like a little bit. So we yeah. kind of will have more to share with each other. Absolutely. And I really encourage everybody listening and watching to, you know, chime in. You know, if you have something to say, reach out to us. And uh, you know, if you've made a connection that 
these guys because that's the thing this this book is old now you know it's mm-hmm. it's old it's old news as they say but you know it's filled with amazing information but i i think there's more to it you know not every no one has every piece of the puzzle but everybody has a piece of the puzzle you know and uh i don't know if lawrence knew about box saga or half the stuff that that it's is crazy uh, if he didn't <laughs> because whoa. Well, I mean, technically <laughs> eeyore had come out with the box saga and it was floating around the alternative world since the 90s you know so potentially he might have potentially he might have looked the other way too quick because he was busy as hell doing his own research you know people that do this kind of research man i it's hard to distract you know <laughs> and but also i find that like even if he doesn't know about box saga the things that he that talks about it's like he knows kind of he just might not know the saga side of it right like right. He, i feel like he's like right in the same sort of um arena of the historical things that box saga says I mean, I don't yeah. know. We've it's only been two chapters, but I'm just like, whoa! I think oh, it's I, leading yeah. right into it. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I would you're agree. The, you're the expert on that, but <laughs> no, compared to me, like I don't know anything really about it besides what you've told me. <laughs> so well, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying to bring more more uh, light on because like there there is a huge Tolkien connection. There is a huge Lord of the Rings connection with the saga and and even if you let go of the saga, because I've I've decided like the best way to kind of frame the saga is that it really is a primer. It's a primer to everything, a hypothetical primer still to everything else that's unfolded. And that's why these kinds of texts are important to me. Like the ring Lords, because he is talking about, like you said, talking basically about what the saga talks about, but the sagas talk about its own thing. That's Mm. supposedly older. And when mm. you put it in front of or, you know, behind stories like this, these take on more of a life than they had before, in my opinion. So it, it lends them context in a way like Absolutely. or like shows a pattern of um, origin in a way or whatever. Right. Absolutely. That's that. It's like the you can kind of see the uh, the ripple effect and where it came from almost. Yeah. So um, I just like first thing when I opened the book, I seen the acknowledgments and they're like, obviously all his um, things that he's like attached to in his titles, but his acknowledgments that I thought were like really interesting were the sacred kindred of St. Columbia, which or Columba, sorry which I try to find some information about that. And it's all very convoluted. And like, there's like a, a, saint columba from spain and there's um like the so do do you know anything about the saint columba no, no, no i haven't found anything yet yeah so I based, for that one i mean i did find some stuff but we can talk about it maybe a bit later when it, um because oh. i have it's it's just like a i'm well let me now. just yeah. okay okay i'll open it up <laughs> let's do it let's do it let's get into um, it we don't even have to read yet <laughs> So I just like found a pretty random website because the like wiki and stuff. I don't know. It just seemed like it was misleading and being like making it sound like hearsay here. And it might be this Spanish saint or might, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't giving me a clear picture of like what, who the Saint Clement was. So then I found this um, other one and it kind of was talking about, I think 
they used his book even for some of the stuff they found in it. But it says, do you want us to read this? It's like yeah, a little sure. paragraph. Okay. It says, St. Columba was born in the um, country of Donegal in Ireland. It says country, but maybe it means county. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was a country in that time. In oh, the year of 521, and was connected both on his father's and mother's side with the Irish royal family. He was carefully educated for the priesthood. And after having finished his ex, the whatever, his priesthood studies, he found mm-hmm. monasteries in various um, parts of Ireland. Um, And it goes on to say... There's something about a dragon connected to him. To Lawrence? To St. Columba. Oh. I don't know. This be... is a lot of words, and I didn't really um, okay. get this note together that good, but I think that's something to like maybe look into a bit more. Yeah. As we honestly, like as soon as I looked at the acknowledgments, I was like, okay, hey, what are all these groups? Like, obviously, I know what the Order of the Knights Templar, but of St. Anthony, like, I'm not really sure. And all the rest. So there's the Sacred Kindred of St. Columba, the Royal House of Stuart, obviously. That's and we the European Council. Yeah, the European Council of Princes. Mm-hmm. Then the Noble Order of the Guard St. Germain, which I had never heard of, and the Imperial and Royal Dragon Court and Order, which I, I honestly had never heard of. And I was just like, what the fuck are these? And then so I, I went to the website of the Dragon Order. Have you been to that website of theirs? Oh, yes. It's run the, by Abby, uh, Nicholas DeVere's daughter. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. Because unfortunately, so, he's passed. So we won't, passed. we won't be able to get him or yeah. Lawrence, unfortunately. <laughs> on the show so yeah and he he has like a weird little cryptic thing about lawrence that's kind of like it's like he's trying to say something about the book i don't know it's like he's trying to like say it's not connected to us but it is or like i don't know like it's like a cryptic little part that he says about it and so i was like oh that's interesting but um yeah, I'm not familiar with their relationship and I I haven't gotten that far with, you know, I haven't asked Angela or, you know, because I just kind of, I've heard, again, I've heard that name for years, just mm-hmm. never was looking into other things, you know, and now that he's come up, he's come up very recently in the past few days. I'm just like, what? And uh, another interesting, who I, I told you about this, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but still um, another name that was connected to Lawrence was Tracy Twyman. And that was yeah. really interesting because I don't, I, again, again, it was another name that I've heard so many times, but I've just was busy looking into other things. I just knew that's a name that's in our community. You know, I had no idea that she was that steeped as an author in occult wisdom and the bloodlines and all that kind of stuff. She was like the only interview I really found with Lawrence that I could listen to at length which was cool. Um, and then when I look her up, it's just all related to like Isaac Cappy and her how, how is she related to not Isaac her Cappy. related directly? Like, but like her, oh. her name relating to, you know, the whistleblowing, you know, all his claims and stuff like that. And she committed suicide and everything. And I'm just like, well, yeah, yeah. Quote unquote. And it's just like, Whoa, this is crazy. And I, that's it was like a whole separate rabbit hole that i didn't expect to get into when leading up to reading this book you know i was like way off base 
So this Nicholas DeVere thing and the Dragon Court kind of hooked me too. So I think we're going to be probably talking about that throughout this. And he's probably going to talk about it a lot in this book anyway, you know? It seems like he's leaving room to like explain about these different things he's a part of later. And because I've looked up a few websites and then they used him at his book as a reference and they've like, so I think he, it is coming up eventually where we're going to learn the history of these um, different secret societies, I guess, that he's a part of or like brotherhoods, ancient brotherhoods right. that he's part of and what it has to do with all of this. I mean, the uh, the princes, the, the Council of Princes, that one's the easiest one to explain because it's like a uh, diplomatic thing within the European Union that he's a part of. Um, yeah. And it's... It is a little shady how he describes it. Not that he's being shady about it, but that like the organization's existence is weird because it kind of sounds like they're the gatekeepers on behalf of the people where like they may they like vote or make sure like that the people don't get subjugated to too much nonsense. That's kind of how he put it, which I'm sure is a very generalized definition of what they do. But yeah, it was just it was just weird. Just weird. I just, hey, I'm not from England, so I don't, I don't know how these yeah. things work. You know, we don't have so, anyone on our side here in the United right. States government. So, like, just for listeners, this book is basically like a book. I think outlining the um, bloodline of the ancient kings, like the true rulers before they were usurped by the Catholic Church. And it's and like, I'll oh, go ahead. No, you go. I was just gonna say it's like an un cloaking or like a decostuming of stories that we're all very familiar with or yeah. themes and subjects with you know. so many things that were just like you wouldn't even think are related to it coming into play and like even yeah, yeah even like what i was um made that post about, about the horned skulls that were found i feel like that's gonna come into this because like Maybe. it that leads kind of to Gil gilgamesh and i think that is connected to this too right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> i mean i've so that's the thing i've never read through the whole thing either it's been like an encyclopedia here and there until so that's the thing what really hit me and made me go back and, and like become like totally enamored by his work was because of the box saga, because it led me to like taking away ancient aliens and trying to like dig through that stuff. That's what led me here. When I started to try to individually debunk certain groups of ancient aliens, that's when I started to come across his work and Devere and a number of others it's just like confirming all of it uh, just crazy and it's not easy to swallow for people so it's not like it's not a distraction like this is so clearly like a, ah, yeah i can't even describe it in words but this is going to be great why don't we get to it shall we yeah let's get into it <laughs> uh, all right let's start the preface here the myth and magic of the grail quest during these past years of my questing for the physical and spiritual aspects of the Holy Grail, it has become very apparent that the mythology and historical traditions of the Ring Quest are equally compelling. Moreover, the time-honored quests of the Ring and the Grail are, in essence, one and the same, since they are both concerned with aspects of enlightenment and individual sovereignty. 
This similarity was commented upon in the 19th century by the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson and by the composer Richard Wagner, while in later times it has been supported by J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the popular trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Despite the observations of these noted researchers, however, it is a fact that the ring and the grail have generally been perceived to have separate ideas identities and their individual traditions are rarely discussed as being in any way mutually supportive it is therefore the purpose of this book to bring the two mysteries together for the first time in one arena and in so doing to shed new light upon the historical truths which lie behind these enigmatic relics of sacred heritage and you know before i go any further there was this awesome quote in the beginning of the book um let me see if i can grab it it was, uh, of course, now it's going to take me a while to find. There we go. Fable should be taught as fable, myth as myth, and miracles as poetic fancies. To teach superstitions as truth is horrifying. The mind of a child accepts them, and only through great pain, perhaps tragedy, can the child be relieved of them. And that's from Hypatia of Alexandria from 370 AD. Ooh. Um, the reason why I think that's important is just because of how early it is. And it's like, this is when the birth of these mythologies began, you know, this changing of the guard, if you will, I think. Yeah, I think um, that when we take this kind of like these old stories, really, literally, we're missing out on so much of the true meaning, which is obviously allegorical. Like, it's, mm. it's like... When there's like magic happening, it's, I don't know, or mythical creatures, it's a reference of something symbolic. And mm. when we take it literally, we lose the entire meaning. Like there, and there is real magic in the allegory. It's just different. It's yeah. Like it's very hard to put into words, right? Yeah. Like, because it is allegory and it is literal, but it's almost like both of those have been twisted. And people mm -hmm. like flip them on accident because mm -hmm. it's like you throw out the wrong thing. You know, it's like, yes, take it literally because these were events that happened. These were representing representing people. You, but they throw that out typically and keep the magical side of it, which is take like taking the magical part of it literally like snake headed people. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of, yes, this is symbolic, but it stands for real people like that. Yeah. And that's what gets thrown out typically. And by traditional skeptics, all of this is just primitive people being retarded and just making up their own fantasies on mushrooms. It seems crazy that like that, that would ever be like a conclusion because like that's all we have is like the mythos of the Story, past right yeah. it's all we are so, is storytellers yeah so like if we if we throw it out as some kind of fancy like campfire tale just to entertain like that's really silly right so i think we'll probably jump around a little bit we won't read every paragraph because you know honestly probably go out and buy the book everybody but you know yeah. just also you know this is somebody else's work but we will be reading quite a bit of it i mean 
I literally spoke to the woman that owns the rights to these things. So she yeah. seemed like she was excited that it was happening. I even sp- inspired her to start reading it again after 20 years. So who knows? Maybe she'll have more to say on the on the topic eventually. Well, we'll skip ahead here. One aspect of my writing, which has prompted a certain amount of inquiry over past months and which I introduced in Genesis of the Grail Kings is the establishment of the Hungarian Order of the Dragon. In this respect, I have imparted some further information in chapter 18. By way of an extract from these sources, the position concerning the officers of this closed non-joining fraternity is as follows. The order is currently registered at the High Court of Budapest as the Imperial and Royal Dragon Court and Order. Uh, It says Ordo Draconis. 1408. The Grand Chancellor is Chev. What what is Chev short for? I think it's Cavalier. Cavalier. Oh, yeah. It means means knight. Knight. Yeah. Dr. Georgi von Varhegi Lair, Count of Oberberg. Now, Oberberg is a really old name, so that's cool. Definitely heard Jim Chesner say that name before, and Michael Desarion. Of course, I don't remember the context. With inner court members, including HRH Prince Michael of Albany, head of the Royal House of Stuart, Grand Duke Peter Gallison of Carpathia, and Baron Wadian, Wadiank Zoltan, Zoltan Nemissary. His name is Nemissary. You know what's crazy is that how intertwined all these people are. Like they're like with each group yeah. that he talks about. Like they're all in a few of the groups or something. Yeah. yeah. So he goes on. He goes on to list Bishop Bella. Cernak is the Grand Prior in Transylvania and Chevalier Baron Andreas G. von Lair, the Grand Prior in Germany. Other notable members are Count Monis, Monsignor Laszlo Esterhazy, Chevalier Count D- Dr. Janos Zeki Teleki, and Chevalier Monsignor Laszlo von Galantal Esterhazy. Popple chaplain, provost Parakas of the Mariar, Maria Rometty Cathedral <laughs> in Budapest in Britain and the English-speaking countries, and the order resides within the protectorate of the Royal House of Stuart, with the Grand Prior being Dr. Andrew von Zygmunt, Baron de Lemheny of the Hungarian Consulate. I apologize for so your way braver than me. Like I, I'm always, I'm always just like choking on these names and old words. So I'm just like skip it. Somebody really cool, (laughs) a really weird name. Yeah, a bunch of old dudes. Yeah, really old guys. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that was his. That was most of the introduction there. It's a really short preface. Um, But yeah, we'll move right along here to the first chapter: the Ring and the Grail. So this is really cool. We're getting into it here. Yeah. Eternal quests. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bind them. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is one of the most enchanting and successful tales of all time. First issued in the 1950s, this famous trilogy could just as well have emanated from the dark ages or medieval times. 
for it has all the qualities and attributes of the most ancient grail and ring traditions. This was made possible by the fact that Tolkien, an Oxford professor of Anglo-Saxon and English language, had the legendary right I mean, part Tad. So spot on right he this was guy's there. super educated and super connected actually so where he um like studied helped him fuel his folklore or his like story with folklore so oh yeah interesting and i've said it on the show before but just to say it in context here is that tolkien wrote his first elven languages right after translating finnish grammar which is what? so crazy that's really cool Finnish language which is like the swedish finnish line yeah. it's blurred and there's all these people speaking root it's nuts so anyway yeah if tolkien didn't know about box saga very much like gardner and and uh what's his name nicholas devere like they know maybe more from a different angle of history you know but it's so far removed still you know, that's again, what I sort of think. Saga's a preface. But anyway, okay. So he was an Oxford professor of Anglo Saxon and English language. Had the legendary wealth of ages at his fingertips and molded his story accordingly. As a result, the masterwork became the most popular individual publication of the 20th century. The Ring Quest has a history that dates far back into the mists of time, beyond the pyramids of Egypt and the walls of Babylon. It has lived on through the error of the pagan gods and has seen the rise of Buddha, Christ, and Muhammad. Remarkably, its traditions and allegories remain alive and intact to this day, evoking the imagery of a long distant past. Despite the many centuries of church and governmental indoctrination designed to sway us from the quest, its enlightened truths draw hard upon our collective memory. Consequently, the difference between fiction and suppressed fact is inherently recognizable and the ancient lore sits very comfortably in today's environment, having, as we shall see, a perpetual moral truth at its heart. Isn't that crazy? You say like, so many things I've tried to say in better I words. <laughs> yeah, I just love that whole paragraph so much. It just yeah. like really paints the picture of like how ancient the ring quest is and like, yeah. Do you want me to read some? Sure. If you'd like to. Yeah. yeah. I anticipated sure, just reading this whole thing. So anyone that we have on that wants to take up the mantle a little bit. Sure. Why not? Sure. Okay. Um, in considering the history of the ring quest, it's parallel association with the grail quest becomes increasingly apparent as do the origins of fairies, elves, pixies, sprites, gnomes, and goblins. Ring lore is also deeply rooted in many of the best-loved nursery tales and provides the essential facts behind numerous time-honored characters of popular legend. That's so, and that sets a stage too, because th this is some of the stuff that I've slowly discovered over time too, where all these stories that we have have such important roots to them. Um, I think, uh, I think it was, it was the Great Deception, the yeah, the Great Deception podcast. I think. He, I think that's where I first heard about like the cabbage patch kids and stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, oh my God. What is happening? Like every story we have just goes back to these. It's like they're trolling us or something. Yeah. It's really strange. Um, I'll read this next one too. Okay. Grail, sto 
Grail stories are generally associated with Arthurian knights roaming the wasteland in search of the sacred relic. But the genre also embodies many other questing tales, incorporating such characters as Cinderella, Robin Hood, Sleeping Beauty, and Count Dracula, which I'm pretty curious to see how Count Dracula reflects the ring quest. I mean, like, I did read it, but uh, I can't really remember, like, the details and stuff but yeah yeah i guess probably I, the, the blood or something maybe it's gonna be interesting i know a little bit about it but not from this book just from an interview with devere again oh so, yeah very interesting he has a whole situation about like vampires vampirism and stuff probably in this book to too. check it out before the next episode um so each account holds its own separate mystery and fascination but it is not generally understood that in one way or another, they all stem from a common historical base, which is rooted in the ancient culture of the ring lords. Even though some of the themes have their origin in very old lore, the majority of these tales were newly slanted from the dark ages onwards. When the church set its sights against the ring traditions, that means like all these old tales were flipped and switched around to serve the catholic church which is crazy one point because the dark ages that's right about i mean what what years are we uh looking at it's like for the first like it's like 500 to 1500 i can't remember yeah it's somewhere around maybe even up to just 1200 i can't remember we'll get to it but like it's right around there and uh yeah it fits in it fits in with like the historical narrative of like what the church was doing in that time for sure like just yeah dude it was 500 to 1580 1500 AD yeah dark ages so he's saying that that's when this happened which is really crazy because that's when the catholics destroyed udenma in the yeah. saga oh really the end of the, 1050 AD right smack Holy in the middle shit. of the dark ages but it was going on beforehand and after, yeah. you know, the, but 1050 was the big moment in time that was awful and like totally destructive, which aligns with so many other stories that we've all kind of learned about the Catholics and what they did to the pagans, whether you still are on one side or the other, or you can view this, you know, both of these perspectives at the same time, you know, but one way or the other, this is what happened in a lot of cases. So it's not like the box saga is too original there. It's not like this is saying anything new, but it's con- confirmation, in my opinion, just more and more confirmation. Yeah, and whether whatever belief you come to this with, once you read this book, it kind of flips everything on its side a little bit anyway, and you see things from a completely different perspective, I feel like, after. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, right. so this was especially the case from medieval times when the persecution of heretics was in full swing, leading to the brutal inquisitions, which began in the 13th century. Yeah. From the earliest of Sumerian and Scythian times, over 5,000 years ago, the abiding symbol of the ring lord was the ring, a representation of wholeness, unity, eternity, often identified as an Auroraboros, a serpent clutching its own tail. Which is very interesting, right? <laughs> I mean, like, if you look at, if you know anything about any kind of, like, Freemason art, alchemical art, any kind of, like, medieval symbolic, like, the Auroraboros is, like, 
I don't know, prevalent like all through absolutely history. And honestly, when I started hearing about like that, well, let me just read this part first. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, okay, okay. So then it says, uh, with a cross position beneath the ring, it becomes a familiar device of the female, the Venus symbol. Alternatively, with uh, cross positioned above the ring, it becomes the masculine orb of sovereign regalia. With the cross positioned within the ring, it symbolizes the Holy Grail itself, identified as the Rosicrucius, the dew cup or the cup of the waters. Hence, as confirmed by Professor Tolkien, along with the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson and the composer Richard Wagner, the Grail and the Ring are closely affiliated and in some measures synonymous wow. so yeah that that's a that's a bit there's a bit to go over i feel like that. oh like, yeah absolutely i'm like so just like a little thing that kind of caught my attention is like i did this um i did this dig on the goddess columbia do you ever hear of her like she was like actually really prevalent in um, early American history and she was like the symbol of America and there's all these statues of her at the World's Fair and that's what kind of I started being like who's this broad like what is the statue of and it was took me a long time to figure it out and find it but um, she is almost always holding like a circular lorith or a circle and like a staff of some kind ah. and and I so I was like oh my god she is holding the symbols of the grail or like the ring yeah like yeah yeah. and then um yeah as it goes on it talks about more people in history that are like shown with these symbols but like i just it's it's so thick in the culture it's just like we're so numb to it because we don't even understand what the symbol is that we don't even notice how often the patterns replaying yeah especially with a symbol that simple you know, the circle, I mean, I and bet. It's not, this is like Bach too, cool. right? It has those. Oh, yeah. Here, check yeah, this out. Yeah. Um, boom. You know, oh, that's holy shit. Ancient, at least the Bach saga version of the Ouroboros right there. Holy shit. <laughs> right? So. <laughs> holy exactly it's nuts it's like that's i mean i'm not trying to compare everything to box saga i'm trying to use that as a like a keystone but my god it's just like over and over again you know but i do like those kind of like little things it's like uh it kind of adds credence to or like gives credit to box saga and then it makes me want to go deeper in that and figure out more stuff because when like little bits like that connect it to this kind of stuff, it's really interesting. It's like this, what we're reading is like very little known history. And so if it's connecting all the way with box saga, it's pretty, it's really cool. <laughs> like, yeah. It's intense. I mean, yeah. of course you have to have that, like, you know, I, you have to like suspend disbelief and kind of trust box saga and just say, Hey, let's see if, if we put this first, does it work? Yeah. You know, and how does it work? You know, when we got to bring in like human behavior and and how things uh, it's it's very complicated because there's so much missing. And I think if we had, if we all just, you know, stormed the Vatican, maybe we could. Yeah. But uh, okay. (laughs) I will continue here. Sure. 
The Rosicrucius emblem is recorded as far back as 3500 BC in Mesopotamia, and it has long been the distinguishing device of the Sangreal, which is the Blood Royale or Holy Grail, whose supporters became known as Rosicrucians. And I've always known Rosicrucian to mean Rosy Cross. I'm not sure if he's going to mention it here, but yeah. Uh, through, though traditionally referred to by the church as the Mark of Cain. This device is, in fact, the original and longest standing mark of sovereignty. Are they calling it the mark of Cain to like, sorry, to like, um, to to make it look bad? Yeah. Is that why? I think yes. And then also the opposite. Like, I think it's to me that lines up historically. Yeah. But if they're using, they, they use all of it as a way to discredit heathenism and paganism for sure. Yeah. Even the word devils is uh is like derogatory and like just trying to demonize even demon right like yeah all of these things are yeah used inappropriately so i mean if fairy is an allegory then demon is obviously <laughs> and fairies are <laughs> like you know what I mean? off as lawrence is yeah. going to explain much better than this but it's like yeah man. all right so anyway so that is crazy the market cane though because the, yeah the research i'm trying to do into like where the hell these proto-indo-europeans came from and yeah it's nuts okay though traditionally referred to by the church as the mark of cain this device is in fact the original and longest standing mark of sovereignty in mesopotamia and egypt the early kings of the succession were called dragons because they were anointed with the sacred fat of a large monitor called the mushus or meset can I talk about this first? Yes, the sacred crocodile, right? So, yeah, I actually was like, what the fuck are they talking about? Because, <laughs> like, I, I never just heard didn't of know. A I was crocodile. Like, so then I found this, like, little blurb that kind of, like, um, talks about the crocodile thing. Okay. So I'll just read this little part. Um, when we consider the etymology of the Hebrew word Messiah, according to several sources, Messiah is derived from the ancient Egyptian word Messe, same as what we just read, meaning crocodile. Apparently, the pharaohs were anointed during their wedding ceremonies with crocodile fat, which was believed to offer sexual potency and fertility. Mesa, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Mesa fat was the Egyptian's version of Viagra. (laughs) The Jews supposedly adopted thin... Oh, sorry, this ancient custom and anointed their prophets with olive oil for lack of crocodiles in the Holy Land. This leads to the bizarre conclusion that the ultimate root of Christ is crocodilian. (laughs) Reptiles. I think more like he's saying like it, like the like Messiah comes from crocodile, but not like not like literally like Christ was a crocodile, but like this was the this is the allegory that led to or like they are connected in the allegory of like Absolutely. the crocodile fat anointing the kings of Egypt the king the royal bloodline yes and he and Christ is I guess the guy Jesus Christ was par- actually part I think he says this in the book it was part of the royal bloodline and oh, that yeah. was oh, yeah. his like superpower only Da Vinci Code yeah. is about Lawrence Gardner basically yeah that's what i'm starting to figure out i'm like <laughs> this is like 
what the fuck? Like all these places and stuff are in the Da Vinci Code. And I'm like, I gotta watch it. I gotta watch it again. You do. And then you'll just like take all the notes on how many things they don't talk about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where they skip the good bits. Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) So check this out. It's amazing everything you just read in context with this next part. Okay, so they were called dragons because they were anointed with the sacred fat of a large marble messiah. See figure on page seven. From this derived the Hebrew stem MSSH, which gave rise to the verb Mashiach to anoint. Thus, the kings were also called Messiahs, Messiahs, anointed ones. In the Gaelic world, the overall kings of kings were known as pen dragons head dragons and from the earliest times they were also styled ring lords by virtue of their rings of office which symbolized divinely inspired justice although the messianic bloodline of the sangreal is believed to descend from jesus and his family the fact is that the grail dynasty began more than three millennia before the gospel era as an as a hereditary emblem the rosicrucis represented the matrilinear blood of the messianic succession held within the 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 suterine chalice the womb of the grail queen the dragon being emblematic of wisdom was the epitome of the holy spirit which moved upon the waters of time while the grail was the perpetual blood of the succession originally called the grail in old mesopotamia the maternal blood of the Rosicrucis was said to be the nectar of supreme excellence, and the Greeks called it ambrosia. Now, Dan and I have talked about ambrosia, and Yake, we've talked about this in relation to Bach Saga when things changed from seed to blood. Yeah, okay. So I tried looking into ambrosia, and I think, like, generically, they just say, oh, it's the food of the god there's like the ambrosia and the nectar and they call it now they say it's two different things the ambrosia is the food and the nectar is the drink but i think like originally it was just one thing which was the blood of the kings was am i right yeah Yeah. yeah okay blood of the kings but so yeah box saga has a different uh, precursor to it is it because they drink blood I because don't know of, about that. I don't think so. They're talking about the lineage, like the bloodline, you know, okay, at least in okay. this context right here, what we're reading now. There's definitely parts where they drink blood. I'm going to tell you. So I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, well, yeah, you were uh, saying before you we were recording that the lines between like the good guys, the bad guys, the underdogs, the overlords, like it all kind of shifts gears all over the place yeah you know and what yeah. we end up really chasing after is human ego when we're looking for yeah. the bad guy right okay exactly um let's see where did i end here okay Tolkien's ring, Tolkien's ring. for all practical purposes the mythology of jrr tolkien's the lord of the rings can perhaps be seen as an intuitive parable of governmental suppression and of the combative quest for liberty and justice. It is essentially a tale of territorial lordship and of power vested in the wrong hands, a dark power which has to be destroyed in order to return the wounded Middle-earth to its former equanimity. 
In its own way, the story is entirely reminiscent of the central precept of Grail lore, which determines that only when the wound of the Fisher King is healed can the wasteland be returned to fertility. And okay, you know so it's interesting. He, yeah, go you ahead. ahead first. No, you go first. <laughs> we're, we're both too nice. No, 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 you, no, you. <laughs> um, Tolkien, you know, the, what, what I've always been told and what I believe the movie showed was that he wrote these due to the friendships and follies he experienced throughout the war-torn eras of his time. And I feel like maybe that was a small part of it, or maybe that's something he would have publicly said, perhaps. It's just... I tend to agree with Lawrence because even before I found this book, I knew Tolkien had something to do with that ancient shit, you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's how he um, wrote about like the character development within mm. the friendships and stuff going on there. But like, yeah, I, I think like the mythos of the story is actually like, it's sort of weird because it's, it is, it is like a, a snapshot of maybe ancient history, but also it seems like it's repeating now and maybe has repeated even between because it feels so similar to like um, now even like we're yeah. like the, the overlords are like, it seems like they're multiplying in great numbers and they have like our backs against the wall. And it's just like this hero's tale of like, how are we going to save ourselves from the, lead the, the leaders the, yeah the, or like what not, may not be the dragon anymore the you know power I mean? that be or whatever right. which is the actually like turns dark like the it's right it's, it's so the never-ending story it's yeah. like all of our mythos yeah it really and is like is it just replaying yeah and as we like we have a victory then will it just succumb to that again and you know what i mean yeah the endless cycle yeah um, the Ouroboros. The Ouroboros. <laughs> oh, okay. Should I read a bit? Sure. Sure, okay. Um, Tolkien's story begins with Bilbo Baggins, a hobbit who has acquired a magic brain that can render its weaver invisible. Wearer, sorry. Mine's a little blurry, so if I mess That's up, okay. just let me know. <laughs> Having bequeathed it to his heir, Frodo Baggins, Bilbo promptly vanishes on his 11... 11... 11 first. 11 <laughs> birthday, which is he was 111. If no one's heard the word 11 first before, like me. Um, Gandalf the wizard is concerned because he believes the ring to have been made long ago by the evil Lord Sauron and that it is having a negative effect on the Middle Earth environment where the once sublime forest of Greenwood, the great is beset by oppressive forces to become known as Mirtwood. Bilbo has originally purloined the ring from a strange underground creature called Gollum, and on testing it, Gandalf discovers it is certainly the ring of Sauron, the One Ring, which binds various others within its ultimate power. Meanwhile, the dark forces have been driven out of the forest by the elves but they now gather to the east in Sauron's land of Mordor, where they fought to retrieve the ring. There's only, you want to chime in? Uh, just just so far, I wonder how Lawrence Gardner will talk about this, how it's like, he does set like this ring as the metaphor to be completely evil, which is interesting, yeah. you know? But anyway. Well, it yeah. is strange actually and it um it's almost like uh well the ring isn't e 
it is sort of like has a, a it has the when, potential. Yeah, to be evil. And that's the same yeah. as any kind of like power, right? right or any right. kingly power. Like, and probably the temptation is very great when you have that much power and ego to to turn to darkness so maybe that's what he what it's kind of like alluding to is that like yeah it can do kind of good in good people's hands but the temptation so great with it you need like a strong hero you need like a a pure pure soul and strong heart yeah to lead or the temptation is too great and it will pull you to darkness no matter what. Cause even like some of his companions turn kind of dark after a bit, like with their greed for the ring and whatever. That's right. right. Yeah. It's a constant struggle against their own selves. Okay. I think I'm at, there was, there's only right. Yes. Yeah. There's only one. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just read the, um, the next two. Cause they're like cool. kind of Lord of the Rings kind of, and then we'll go to the next part. <laughs> um, good. There's only one way to destroy the ring of power, and that is to cast it into the fire in which it was forged on the Mount Doom. And so Bilbo's young cousin Frodo and a few hobbits embark on the dangerous journey. Along the way, they are attacked by the Black Riders, but also meet with friendly elves and with Aragorn, King of Gondor, who conducts conducts them to the White Council of Elves and Dwarves, where they learn about the Great War against Sauron. Frodo and the hobbits, forming a fellowship with Gandalf and Aragorn, pursue their course to dispose of the ring, but Gandalf is soon lost to the abyss in a battle, leaving the group without their wizard. At this, a conflict ensues over who should be the leader, and Frodo disappears with the ring to the Land of Shadows. The others set out to find him, but they are now in dispute on as to their purpose because the dark powers are working against them. This is a great step now if you want sure <laughs> okay. various members of the fellowship are lost in a battle against the hostile orcs leaving only aragon and two others in the search for frodo later they meet again with gandalf who has returned from the underworld to defeat his one-time chief the wizard saruman who has joined forces with the dark powers and the orcs Meanwhile, Frodo and his colleague Sam have reached the land of Mordor, but Frodo is paralyzed by Shalob, the giant spider, and seized by the orcs. In Aragon's land of Gondor, the regent Denethor is preparing for war against the forces of Mordor, but Sauron's magic is too powerful and Gondor is overrun. Saved only by the timely return of King Aragon, Aragorn and his rangers. Sam, in the meantime, has managed to rescue Frodo from the orcs, and the pair make their way to the Mount of Doom with the ring on Frodo's finger. But the ring now has Frodo in its grasping power, and he cannot hurl it into the hellfire. The strange golem, whom Bilbo had first encountered, then reappears to take back the ring. He bites off Frodo's finger, but slips and topples headlong into the inferno. And so the ring is finally returned to where it was forged at which the Mount of Doom erupts in a final blaze of destruction and Sauron's dark land of Mordor is demolished for all time. On returning home after a meeting with Gandalf and Aragorn, the hobbits Frodo and Sam find their shire in the grip of the wizard Saruman, but he is soon overcome and the land is restored. With the Great War and its era of darkness at an end, Frodo and Gandalf then join together for the last time as they leave Middle-earth and sail westward to the white shores beyond the sea. 
it's pretty it's it's I just want to talk about it. yeah yeah please <laughs> um it's just um it's really crazy actually just like what I've never really looked at the Lord of the Rings like this and just how um how much it kind of likes um the what's that guy's name Saruman right Saruman he's, yeah he's the the gray or whatever or Saruman the He's Saruman. Like, right? uh, he's uh, in charge of the wizards, basically, and he's supposed so, to be good. Yeah. Yeah, he used to be good, and then he turned to the dark side, and that's just kind of what I'm saying. Like the 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 temptation to evil is great, and even um, good people that are trying to lead others are swayed to like darkness, and it's just so the allegory is so. Um just relevant yeah <laughs> in the, way more relevant than i ever really like noticed just watching the lord of the rings yeah it's funny how often you see it now like anything you watch from like classical literature classical movies the theme is always this it's just nuts how enigmatic and enigmatic it is you know all right so the ring of justice Historically, the ring was a symbol of perpetually divine justice, which was measured by the rod. In ancient depictions, the Sumerian goddess Lilith and the Babylonian god Marduk are individually portrayed holding the rod and ring devices. Now, I just got to stop right there and <laughs> go box style again, because they talk about how everything is about sex. And admittedly, when you look into all the old esoteric languages and the texts and everything it really is it's just a utter celebration of how we fucking got here like mm -hmm. it's constant and everything and whether we think it's perverted in the modern age or not like that's clearly what they were so goddamn excited about for a long time they're like mm -hmm. can you believe it can you yeah. <laughs> it feels good like I mean, we gotta tell know, everyone like, we're talking about primitive like dare i say primitive man but not primitive yeah. in the way but like prehistoric uninformed you know, I mean. you know? Yeah. like early man you know so it's just interesting because the box like i mentions that they mentioned how the alphabet is all rings and poles the story is just rings and poles rings and poles no matter what you do what you look at it's just rings and poles it's yeah it's ridiculous. crazy that's like what i was saying about um columbia like she's always holding a ring and some kind of stuff right. and like it's always about that Seems and that, like, that's right? all over the world fair stuff you're saying yeah all over it and mm. all over like the destruction uh, the, of that world the national anthem of the united states used to be hail columbia and it was a song about this goddess columbia i didn't know that oh that's, that's what i found out and that, that i was like that's the bitch with the circle <laughs> <laughs> like she's everywhere kind of did this dive on her yeah that's awesome I'm sure we'll hear more about it from this book too. Hopefully Seems like it's coming up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So these are in keeping with other portrayals of Mesopotamian Kings and Queens, as for example, on the stele of Shamash and Ur-Namu from the third millennium BC. In some instances, the rod is clearly marked in calculable units, like a modern ruler. And in Babylonia, it was referred to as the rule. 
The one who held the rule was the designated ruler, which is from where the governmental term derives. This is nice. Um, can I chime in just for yes, a sec? Yes, as much so as you I, want. So I looked up those like um, examples of ancient Mesopotamian like um, depictions of the rod and circle. So there, first it was like Lilith, which we've all seen that like Ishtar or Lilith, and she's yep. holding like the two rods with the circle above them, and mm -hmm. then and she has like the owls beside her and the cats by her feet, and she has like bird legs, right? Yep. Um, but um, then next it mentions Marduk, and so I just want to read to you this little bit I found about him. It says. God from ancient Mesopotamia and patron deity of the city of Babylon. When Babylon became the political center of the Euphrates Valley in the 18th century BC, Marduk slowly started to rise to the position of the head of the Babylonian pantheon, a position he fully acquired by the second half of the second millennium BC. In the city of Babylon, Marduk was worshipped and his symbolic animal and servant, whom Marduk once va vanquished, is the dragon. That's awesome. And this, check out the image I have here of Marduk and the ring. Oh, and yeah. Pole. Oh, yeah. I have mine on my phone, but maybe I'll just um try and send it to your Instagram. But Sweet. it's like, or I could just show you maybe he's like standing and he yeah. has a little dragon by his foot there. And he's oh, also yeah, holding, yes. holding the ring on his chest with the pole beside it. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. And like, uh, and you know what's crazy is that statues of Marduk and people like that who are supposed to be gods, Anunnaki, look exactly like the, the uh, statues of uh, shit. Now I'm drawing a blank on his name, but, you know, one of the most famous kings from Babylon, you know, they look identical. All the same jewelry, all the same hairstyle, like everything is identical. Gods and you know what's and... interesting? They also look a lot like these um ancient depictions of like what people call mer people with the guys with the tails. They look yes. exactly like that. And I was thinking like Fisher King, maybe like does that? Yeah, like absolutely. It kind of connects, the Fisher like, King. I I just love like, all the sea people references. Everything yeah. sea people. Like I'll just. I mean, maybe I'm being too liberal about it but yeah i i hear fisher king and I, you look into that it's just it's yeah it's these goddamn sea people yeah. and they were seafaring and that was like and if yeah keeping in mind the box saga says that when they left the ice like they were forced to they were well they were already seafaring supposedly anyway because of the interconnected society all across the globe but after ice time it was basically all sea travel so that's pretty Had cool. to be right yeah Okay. Okay. Where are we? Do you want me to go next? No, it's all good. I'll keep reading for okay, a little yeah. bit. I'll finish right. this portion. Yeah. Thank you, though. Yeah. All right. From around 4000 BC, the ring was a primary device of the Anunnaki gods who were recorded as having descended into ancient Sumer and were responsible for the establishment of municipal government and kingly practice. In view of this, it is of particular relevance that when Professor Tolkien was asked about the Middle-earth environment of the Lord of the Rings, he said that he perceived its setting to relate to about 4000 BC. The pot of soup, the cauldron of the story, has always been boiling, he said, and to it have continually been added new bits. In this respect, the root of Tolkien's popular tale was, in accordance with his Anglo-Saxon scholarship, extracted directly from Saxon folklore and was not actually new in concept. 
Indeed, the early Saxon god Wotan, Odin, the equivalent of the Sumerian god Anu, was said to have ruled the nine worlds of the rings, having the ninth ring, the one ring, to govern the eight others. The contested ownership of the one ring, as related to the Lord of the Rings, is little different to the enduring quest for the Holy Grail. They are both quests for the maintenance of sovereignty, but in both fact and fiction, the ring and the grail are each seen to miss to be misappropriated by those who perceive them as weapons of power. Hence, it has been imperative in the respective stories that access to the grail is protected by difficult questions, just as it was essential to keep the one ring from the evil Sauron of Mordor. As the generations passed from ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian times, the ideal of dynastic kingship spread through the Mediterranean lands into the Balkans, the Black Sea regions, and Europe. But in the course of this, the crucial essence of the old wisdom was lost, and this gave rise to dynasties that were not of the original kingly race. Instead, many were unrelated warrior chiefs who gained their thrones by might of the sword. The sacred culture of the ancients was nevertheless retained in the messianic line of King David of Judah, whose significance as detailed in Genesis of the Grail Kings was in his pharaonic heritage, not in his generally portrayed descent from Abraham and the Shemite strain. It was because of this particular inheritance that David's son, Solomon the Wise, was enabled to create his Egyptian-style temple project in Jerusalem. This led to a Holy Land revival of the pharaonic and one-time Mesopotamian Rosicrucius movement at a time when Egypt was beset by foreign influencers, first from Libya, Nubia, and Cush, and then from further afield. Resultantly, the traditional marriage arrangements of the pharaohs and princesses gave way to diplomatic alliances. Can we just backtrack for a sec? Sure. Um, so I actually like made a mark that I want to talk about and like see if you could if you could tell us how this relates to Box Saga cool. on page six, like halfway down. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, about halfway down, it says, um, indeed, the early Saxon god Wotan, Odin, the equivalent of the Sumerian god Anu, was said to have ruled the nine worlds of the rings, having the ninth ring, the one ring, to govern the eight others. And so, like, isn't there, isn't it like a concentric ring? You tell us. How does so that relate? So there's interesting connections here because... First of all, there is like one ring to rule the rest where the all father sat at the North Pole. That was their concentric ring society caste system. Mm. The concentric mm. rings were different castes. So mm. in in Box Saga, at the very tippity top in the center in hell, you have the box, right? They're in charge of everything, but they're also called the Acer people. Now, what's interesting is many, you know, historical scholars know what the word Acer means because it refers directly to the gods, the Asgardian gods. And they just say, oh, yeah, that's just the gods. That's the fictional, you know. So they were called Acer. They were also called Pirouette, which is interesting because what is a pirouette? Like a dance move? A dance move where you're spinning around 
completely in a circle on the tip of your toe. So yeah. they are in the center of the top of the pole. Um, so where else? Okay. So, and it's like bloodline, right? So they're like the Royal bloodline at the center of the ring. Basically. The yeah. Ring. But so yeah, this okay. predates bloodlines. Like yeah. we followed the mother, not the man. Like we followed the, the, the matriarchal lineage yeah. when we're talking box saga, especially in paradise time. That's equivalent to the esoteric Lawrence. writings about, um, you know, goddess worship and the sacred mm -hmm. feminine. It mm -hmm. box saga claims, oh yeah, yeah, that comes from us too, you know. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What were you gonna ask? Um, I was just gonna say like the the mat matriarchal like lineage is Lawrence kind of talks about this. I think coming up here quite too. a bit in all of his yeah. books, actually. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, again with the Da Vinci Code, you know, the sacred feminine was a huge part of that book and and they kind of glazed over it in the movie a little bit but it was there you know yeah. um but the other interesting thing is that not to say that that again he doesn't know box saga right we gotta think of it like box saga is this very small s story that was not allowed to be talked about publicly supposedly until 1987 mm -hmm. so all these stories just existed without it but it yeah. fills in a big piece but it's interesting that it's one ring to rule over the nine total or eight others but nine in total where that like nine doesn't really ring true like a ring like a connection to box saga eight does because there's eight powers they okay. call these eight powers and i can't give it to you right now but i like that we're doing a series because we think of things and we can kind of come back to them uh yeah. the eight powers are absolutely represented in other traditions as well just called different things so it's that's a really interesting part of it but yeah box saga was like the one ring to rule over the rest i guess you could say but after ice time when all of that fell apart and like the box saga claims that's when the white people showed up from the loss of pigment, loss of melanin from the Arctic conditions. Uh, it formed three distinct, or they eventually just formed or separated into three distinct white races. Okay. Three, three Arctical races. Mm -hmm. And they said there was 10 tropical races that were okay. untouched, untouched by the ice. And that eventually they would make contact with again. Of course, no one remembered anybody by that time. Yeah. You know, the box like it kind of tells the story as if it's like you could tell it in a two hour movie. And it's like this guy and he gets trapped in the ice and then he gets out and he goes back to the world. But we're talking when we hear these family names, we're talking about generations and generations, you know, uh, of every part of that story, you know, leaving the ice that is clearly generational storytelling yeah. because how long did that natural process take, you know? Yeah. So it's a whole, yeah. Okay. Let's get back to this. Okay. Where are we here? Okay. And this oh, is cool. Yeah. I wish I could show the book to the audience here just because There's of how, book. how many great pieces of artwork are in here, you know, of Ahura Mazda. Well, I'm calling it Ahura Mazda, but <laughs> let's see what Lawrence says about it. He says underneath this image, it says ring Lord at the Persopolis in Persia from a stone relief of Ahura Mazda associated with the Sumerian Enki. Absolutely. And you look at that picture of Ahura Mazda and anyone can look up the, you know, the ring, the winged ring 
the as it's called today is the wing sun disc which either way doesn't matter because we're talking about the original sun worship anyway um the figure man he's he looks pretty middle eastern but he, you know he looks like the anunnaki that's what they all fucking look like man anki and everybody yeah and he looks just like all these kind of ancient gods and these fish people and like he just has feather tail but like if you just right. drew like the, the scales on that he would look the same as those too it's really strange and he's sitting in a circle but he's holding the other circle as yeah well. he's holding the other circle and i guess you could say like the ring is i mean the 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 rod is kind of represented by mm -hmm. the top of the wings For maybe sure. All right, let's keep going here. Yeah. In 525 BC, Egypt was conquered by the Persians, whose kings were subsequently ousted by Alexander the Great of Macedonia's army in 332 BC. This led to the Greek dynasty of the Ptolemies and the well-known Queen Cleopatra VII. Her liaison with the Roman general Mark Antony caused the final downfall of the pharaohs, and Egypt was subjugated by imperial Rome shortly before the time of Jesus. At length, as the Roman Empire collapsed, Egypt fell to Byzantine governors and then, after 641, to the sway of Islam. By that time, the Grail dynasty from David and Solomon had progressed into the West, notably to the Merovingian kings of the Franks, while related branches established kingdoms in Ireland and Gaelic Britain. These lines were linked through marriage to the parallel strains from the Old Testament characters Ham, Japhet, and Tubal-Cain, which had survived as the royal houses of Scythia and Anatolia. And the families had forged their own marital links with the early princesses of the Egyptian succession. Huh. So, um... <clears throat> So, Kay, can you tell me where um, Scythia is? Yeah. You ever heard of Kazaria? Yeah. Yeah. So. Armenia. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But so also the thing is about the Scythians, they were fucking everywhere. And the more you read about them, they, yeah, like we'll read about it in here and I'll butcher they it here. I'll butcher it for you first. But like like the when... word Pixied is, or Pixi is connected to Scythian. Oh, I feel like everything's leading back to Scythia. Like I, I've been looking into like just any kind of ancient historical book. It's like the most um, like the weirdest branches or like weirdest paths seem to lead to Scythia or the Scythians or whatever. Like and another thing we'll hear in this book, um, probably in a later episode, is that, you know, there used to be north of Israel or I'm, yeah, Israel, right? I mean, it's definitely in Israel, yeah. North, northern Israel, there was a city called Scythopolis. I'm not sure oh, if it's still there today, but it sure was, you know? I heard, I learned and, that from Robert Sepper. Robert Sepper's got a wealth of this stuff, too. So it's saying, like, the royal bloodline of the Egyptians kind of um, went from the Egyptian princesses, it like forged into those areas, the royal bloodline. Is that what it's saying? Um, okay, let's read it again here because I'm with you. It's complicated when we start getting into so many of these names. All right, so we're talking 525 BC. Egypt was conquered by Persians. All those kings 
were ousted from the area by Alexander. Mm -hmm. uh, so the then the Greek dynasty of the Ptolemies and the well-known Queen Cleopatra VII shows up. Mark Anthony causes the downfall of the pharaohs, and Egypt was subjugated by Imperial Rome shortly after the time of Jesus. At length, as the Roman Empire collapsed, Egypt fell to Byzantine governors, and then after 641 to the sway of Islam. So ask again. So actually, it's in the next one at the end okay. of the next paragraph where it says, "Oh, did I already like, read the next one on what next?" Yeah, one? yeah. Oh, my bad. <laughs> because you because like it says like so it, the the Pharaoh dynasty kind of ended with Cleopatra, right? And it became like yes. a Roman rule. And so, um, and Cleopatra wasn't actually technically even uh egyptian right she right. was some kind of mess she was anatolian i believe anatolian okay yeah and so th but then she carried the bloodline but then it says like at the bot at the end of the next paragraph it says um that's uh some strains parallel strains from the old testament characters ham Japhet, and tubal cain which had survived as the royal houses of Scythia and Anatolia, and the yeah. families had forged their own matri marital links with the early princesses of the Egyptian succession. Yeah, so basically, um, these houses of Scythia and Anatolia, yeah, basically usurped Egypt, I think is what they're saying. But it's saying, I think it's saying like that the original pharaohic bloodline actually like joined with those joined with the, joined from with the, the princesses yeah. right so oh man so it it, it bred into the Scythian and Anatolian um right. royalty after the Egyptian pharaohic bloodline right okay yeah I think I think we're gonna suss this out in more detail over these chapters because yeah. a lot of this is pretty complicated to get through it is. That's why I had to read it so many times. I was just like, what the fuck? What are you talking about here? Like, I just had to go through it so slowly each bit and be like, hey, what's this actually saying here? Like, you know what? There's so much information in each one. If I can get my hands on one for cheap or something, maybe I'll roll in a fucking dry erase board and we'll start like oh, yeah. drawing notes. Making like a the crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy I would love to have ground. a timeline, you know, yeah, because the, yeah. especially that's the problem when I started getting into the Scythians and the Phoenicians, because the timelines were just all over the place. And I was so confused. I'm it's like, am messy. I talking like near the time of Jesus or am I talking Mesopotamia? What's going on here? And it's all of the above. It's yeah. All the words are all there. They're all just changed from language to language. Yeah. A lot of these things are happening at the same time instead That's of the thing you know and all throughout and just they predate and it's such a seamless kind of flow of time when you think it's about like it. he's giving like chunks of different timelines of different areas at like sort of in the during the same period so we can get a picture of what was going on like fully to all the bloodlines of the royal yeah and plus on top of that we have to unlearn everything at the same yeah. time you know so let me just take this hit real quick sure i'll read the next one if you want the first pen dragon, head dragon, and the, oh, sorry, of the Britannic Isle, pen draco insularis. From the stock, what, from this stock was king, sorry, do you know that word? Cymbeline. Cymbeline of the house of Cam, Camulot. Camulot meaning, Camulot. Kurt, right? Camulot meaning 
curved light wins Camelot. Wow. Who, yeah, right? Curved and like light. Arthur Pendragon, and then the kings were actually the Pendragons. Like the bloodline was the Pendragon, right? Right. Yeah, of Camelot. So like the yeah. Okay, so who I'm gonna was have to watch Monty Python again, right? It's only a model. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, it's okay. I just lost my place. So the the king, Cymbeline. Cymbeline. Would you yeah. say how do you say that? Yeah, I whatever. said Cymbeline, but I'm guessing Cymbeline. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Of the House of Camelot. Um, who was installed in about AD 10. The British Pendragons were not father to son successors in a particular descent, but were individually elected from reigning family branches by a Druidic Council of Elders to be the overall king of kings of kings. The last Pendragon was the Welsh king called Cadwallader. Cadwallader. Uh, Gwynedd um, <laughs> is not funny um, who died in 664 at around the time much of Britain fell to the Germanic influence of the invading Angles and Saxons hence Angoland England was born as distinct from Scotland and Wales that's wow. pretty that's pretty crazy hey I think so that's like, a bomb I'd say that's a bomb worth yeah. stopping for so I, and it's something that I've been toying with for a while. And then, you know, you find it in this context and it's like, oh my God. Okay. England, Angleland, Anglo-Saxon, Angle. So we got and, the word angels and mm -hmm. angles. And I always thought the angle thing was cool. So I researched angle and angel. And I actually used chat GPT at first and all it could tell me was the Latin roots of both the words. And I was like, okay, but where did those words come from? And then it finally gave me the Phoenician that angel and angle come from the same Phoenician root. Of course. Which eh? is fucking nuts because I mean, maybe this is a stretch, but we're talking about the architects, the builders. We're talking about the Masons. We're talking about, those who work with angles and enough to use it as a symbol. They use the, you know what I mean? So I'm, mm -hmm. who's to say that that isn't part of it, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And um, also like just how many um, words relate back to words in the Arthurian grail legend and like so many words in that just paragraph, like, would redirect you to angle or like things that you know like it's sort of telling of like these old tales and stuff and how where where the root of each part of the story comes from and what the allegory like represents when you see these words and these ancient kings names and things and um it relates all to the whole story in different ways and you know i gotta give our you know, fake historians credit or whatever the fuck was going on back then. Like they had to make this one hell of a tale to, to like kind of cover the unbelievably amazing story that is true about our history. You know what I mean? Like this is mind blowing when taking it for like what it is. And no wonder they created the whole 
supernatural cover over it because that's the only thing that's going to distract us from it. You know what I mean? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. This it's is because so we can take blood. like the magical part literal, and then we are not like looking in the etymology of the words and names ever to find the actual truth behind the tale. They can just totally like shift story. it a bit, yeah, and make it mean something completely different, and right. then we lo we lose the important meaning of it. Same as like the Bible. Yeah, we stuff. Lose like the, you know what I mean. Like we lose the meaning, and we we misappropriate things, and mm. we we're 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 taught what extraordinary and magical are are supposed to mean instead we, of being able to acknowledge how fucking extraordinary and magical our history is that's you know? it and we we lose like what real magic is it's it's like um it drowns it out yeah big time so this is to me that's this is the most important psyop on the planet but I'm not yeah. being censored, so maybe not. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I mean, maybe it will be after we've been talking about <laughs> these names and things. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Once we post his name in the episode bio, we'll be screwed, probably. <laughs> right, right. It's okay. I'm pretty. Uh, I'm pretty shadow banned already around. So whatever, <laughs> whatever. Par for the course. Um, right, do, you go ahead. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. This coincided with Byzantium's loss of Egypt to the caliphs and following the last Roman emperor in AD 476, a whole new governmental structure had evolved in the West. Eventually its ultimate overlords were the popes and outside the, pre the preserved Gaelic domains, they appointed kings, not by any right of heritage, but to suit the political motives of the bishops and the fast growing Roman church. You should just, we should just like think about that. I feel like that sentence is like the premise of like the first two chapters, almost like just mm. say that, like, uh, this it's about this shift, like yeah. this whole story is about the shift from, um, the blood, the bloodline kings and the way things used to be to be now be appointed by the church, the Roman Catholic Church, like. <clears throat> just completely yeah it's yeah. an absolute shift it's a changing of the guards too mm -hmm. so that's what makes me really freaked out about the archaic revival and the new world order because if we've already had this guard the catholic guard if you want to call it that whatever's hiding behind the catholic guard i don't think it's the same people that are taking over the world right now i think right I think that old guard that we've had to deal with is kind of being like hanged and quartered and drawn and quartered in public or something, metaphorically speaking right now. I don't mm -hmm. know. It's really complex, but um, in view of this, the staunch upholders of the church's articles of dogma openly oppose the pre-papal concept of grail kingship. These bishops pronounced the, Oh dude. So, Basically yeah. <laughs> what they're saying is, and I, I'm, I'm not, I'm trying not to be disrespectful to any, any faithful people out there. I'm really not, but I'm trying to bring it, boil it down to very simple human terms here. We went from real lineage to God told me I'm King. 
Ba- well, like that's wicked rudimentary, but that's basically what we're going from. We're going it was from basically a manipulation, more... a political manipulation. Oh, like... Well, and a consciousness manipulation, like yeah. a cognitive manipulation, of course. Yeah. We're literally going from natural to supernatural here. Yeah. This is where we're taking yeah. that's and it's the Catholic Church doing it. For sure. Or whatever, as I say, is behind the Catholic Church. Yeah. Right. Okay. That yeah, man, that shit's nuts. Every every line in this book is magic so far. So I know, right? these bishops pronounced the Arthur Arthurian romances heretical and blacklisted the prophecies of Merlin in 1547 at the Council of Trento in northern Italy. Everything that was magic to the ears and all that was fresh air to the subjugated became denounced as sinister and occult. The great enlightenment of the grail code of service was condemned in a series of brutal inquisitions from 1203 and anything remotely connected with the female ethic was dubbed witchcraft. In this latter regard, the church became so fanatical in its opposition to the ring culture that in 1431, when Joan of Arc was sentenced to burning at the stake for her allegory for alleged sorcery, One of the main charges leveled against her was that she had used magical rings for curative purposes. Wow. Crazy. It's like just to like demonize the ring. Right? Yeah. It's so crazy. Now keep in mind from the box saga perspective, this is about 500 years after the destruction of Udenma, the third Ragnarok. Um, mm-hmm. This was the first destruction caused by human, which was the Catholic church. Supposedly they made a giant ring around Udenma, which is 250 kilometers in diameter. They had this massive army assembled in middle Europe and they surrounded Udenma and just closed the circle like everyone's favorite gaming style now battle royale where the map just starts getting smaller and there's just fire beyond it and so they just burned and killed everything alive and it's just crazy how this parallels you know it's crazy um okay the sacred hallows I think we're going to finish on chapter 1 today because yeah. this is, and, and I think we're realizing how lengthy this uh this endeavor might be, but hey, I'm I'm willing to go the distance if you are, man. There's just so many interesting footnotes, Adam Karras. I just want to talk about it all, and as long as it takes is as long as it takes. Hell yeah, I like the attitude. Yeah. I hope <laughs> the listeners and viewers are enjoying this so far, too. Yeah. But either way, we're doing it. So. Right? We're doing it anyway. Get on yep. board. <laughs> in all the grail romances and in the tales of the ring, the message is relentlessly clear. In the wrong hands, both the ring and the grail can bring disaster. The power of the ring has to be withstood. Otherwise, it will enslave its master, whereas the grail will retaliate with a vengeance if misused. Either way, the moral is the same in that ultimately power is self-destructive when achieved through selling one's soul. Consequently, the ring can be a halo or a crown, but it can equally become a noose. From the 1930s, Adolf Hitler's fanatical obsession with finding the hallows of Grail Castle was a prime example of this misconceived notion of power. In his search for the hallows, the Fuhrer of Germany obtained an 
ancient lance said to have been used by Charlemagne, which he insisted was the spear of Longinus or Longinus, the centurion, the spear which pierced the side of Jesus at the crucifixion. This he renowned, he, he reckoned, was the sacred spear of destiny, so revered in Grail lore. With this in his possession, Hitler was confident that his empire would be as strong as that of Charlemagne. But legend had it that after many great victories, Charlemagne was doomed to defeat from the moment he lost his magical weapon. In Richard Wagner's opera, Parsifal, this powerful imagery is conveyed when the old knight Klingzor promptly disappears from the mortal plane on hurling the hallowed spear at Percival. And so it was that on 30th, 30 April 1945, the very day when the American 7th Army under General Patton seized the lance from Nuremberg Castle, Adolf Hitler, in the grip of such forceful and consuming lore, accepted defeat and shot himself. Today, the lance resides in the Hofburg Museum, Vienna. Now, two things here. We don't know if Hitler's dead. I'll just say that. Yeah, but that's what I died there. You know, first of all, thought, but yeah, he did. I mean, he did um, lose the war on that day, right? I guess supposedly. Second interesting thing is that when Patton turned it over to the Hofburg, I think it was within a week he was dead. Really, he got into a car accident where he was in the back passenger seat. And he was the only one who was not only injured, but the only one that died. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So that is weird. That is weird. <laughs> so it's like it can bring you glory, but when, as soon as you lose it, you lose everything. So Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> it's okay. I was like, what? <laughs> I think yeah, he's yeah. coughing and talking. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm so. congested. It's so humid in my studio and I can't get rid of it. It's horrible. It's like he, it can give you everything, like all the power and, the, and all the glory. But as soon as you lose it, you lose it all. Well, because it's like a farce almost. It's like, a, yeah, sounds like a house of cards when you when you do it this way, you know? Mm -hmm. all right in the 13th century grail romance parzival by the barbarian knight wolfram von etchenbach the questing parzival first sees the mysterious spear dripping blood from its point at a ceremony in grail castle the sight of it causes much consternation among the knights who explain that it represents the forces which kill the higher spirit in man also, its appearance, when carried, signifies that the Grail quest has not yet been fulfilled. Whether or not the spear of Charlemagne, eventually acquired by Hitler, was indeed this biblical spear of the crucifixion has long been a matter of debate. That apart, it does seem to have an extraordinary history which, according to Leuthbrand, a 10th century bishop of Cremona in northern Italy, can be tracked traced back to the ownership of Constantine the Great and to various other kings and emperors to become known as the Imperial Lance. That's crazy because that's the word they use in Saga too to describe the sword, the, uh, the penis. They also describe that there is a lance within the earth 
that, that like basically makes the poles and everything it meets at the poles and uh it's a ball with a lance and that oh. makes ball lance balance um, micro macro that, that lance is the toroidal field supposedly that the box hog oh. also talks about so you Crazy. got something sorry i cut you off there no, I was just agreeing with you. I was just thinking about how, um, like the pole going through and the ball, how it's just represented on a large scale, what we see represented in the small symbolism everywhere. It's just like, yeah, like micro, macro. Story. Yeah, it's just crazy. Over and over and over again. And it right? gets that to me feels very psychedelic because I felt like, you know, you get that like expansion of time sometimes on psychedelics, but then also you have that, I had a crazy experience of like living and dying, not like painfully or anything, but like just the, the concept the that conscious that life was just this blip of breathing in and out. And like every time breathing in and out, it was like a new life or something like that. It was just chaotic. Consciousness was chaos. It was terrifying almost. And it's like, yeah, all you see everywhere you look, it's almost like you ever seen being John Malkovich. Yeah. Remember when he goes into his own head and everyone is himself everywhere he yeah. goes and everyone yeah. just says Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. Oh my God. It's I forgot about that. <laughs> like what we're doing as humans without even realizing it, we're just expressing this same thing over and over and over and over again, even though here as like humans in duality, everything is individual and multiplied and looks different, you know, it looks unique, but like, underneath it all it's all just this one damn story i i don't these archetypes playing over and over again it's, it's so true. weird okay it's true and we we loop in so many ways like on like as i was saying like eras of time but we are like looping emotionally with our in our relationships and we're projecting right. the same things over and over that are just ourselves that we're watching. Yeah. I so, mean, like, I don't know if I'm making sense that no, I you absolutely understand are. what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> you're echoing exactly my point. Like, you know, yeah, this is history. This is mythology, but these, the symbolism that we're talking about, we're trying to get to the root of is consciousness. It's spiritual. It's, it's like on every level of reality, it's language. It's yeah. It permeates all of it like a fractal. Mm -hmm. so we're basically at the near the end of the chapter here um here if you want i'll read this next part about the sure under tarot the tarot card yeah it is interesting that they're showing the tarot card another so, thing that, that box saga claims ownership of or or origin of in their root language the ta ro means i can't remember what it means but yeah it breaks down uh, to an expression and so I think this card is a magician. Yeah. yeah. So the magician, the magi, and he has all the symbols of the, um, the grail hollows, which I didn't yeah. look up what the grail hollows were, but it's like the four symbols of the grail. Right. Makes you think so, of the deathly hollows from Harry Potter a little different. Right. right? Yeah. And like, <laughs> at least uh, the symbolism, you know, it's definitely repeats. There's a lot of symbolism in those movies for sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, well, so the return of Sauron is the return of Voldemort. I mean, it's oh yeah, you know, it's yeah. So the in return the of the White Walkers, of the, cycle, uh, the return of the White Walker King in the Game of Thrones, like yeah, yeah, the Ice dude. King or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, dude. That's right. Okay, so it shows the magician tarot card, and then it goes uh 
Whether applied in fact or fantasy, the concepts of the ring and the grail was such that it inspired hope for the social and natural environments. The grail hollows, the sword, chalice, platter, and spear were traditionally regarded as tools of princely service, but when presumed to be weapons of power, they would always, one way or another, destroy the wielder from within. So that is actually interesting because it's like they, they're regarded as the tools of um, princely service. But right. pres when presumed to be weapons of power, like when used for ga personal gain, then they become a destructive force. Dude, talk um, about the ultimate rightful duality there of like living in service to others versus living for the self. It's just same it's, damn theme. It's crazy too, because I read the, I just read the Bhagavad Gita and it's talking about oh. like the, how service works. And like when you're in true service, um, it, there's no desire for an outcome, no expectation right. for an outcome. You don't do it for an outcome, whether it's for someone else or whatever you do it for the act of doing, and that's it. And any expectation of, like an an outcome is sort of like um takes away the virtue of the service hell yeah <laughs> um okay so then it says, yeah sure i'll just read this um cool. last little bit of this paragraph these hollows were represented in the four suits of the tarot's minor arcana as the swords cups pentacles and wands subsequently to become the spades hearts diamonds and clubs that are familiar in our playing card decks. So the four hollows of the grail are on our everyday playing cards, which is <laughs> so fucking crazy. Hey? That's so awesome. Yeah. You uh, want to go here? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll finish up the chapter. Sounds great. Here. And then we'll, yeah, we'll go on to chapter two in, in chapter two, in, in episode two of this, because man, Sounds awesome. I love how slow we're going too. That's important. We need to suss as much as we can out. And hopefully the audience will have twice as much as we have, you know? Yeah. I think if you don't go this slow and like, just pick apart these little bits where it misses so much of the context. Cause like yeah. so many little words can get lost, just like glazing, grazing over paragraphs. Yeah. And like, they're really important actually, if you dig them out. Some of these, yeah. Some of these things we are going to have to like read twice and three yeah, times. For sure. Clearly a major inspiration for Tolkien was the legendary tale of King Solomon's ring, which, although not mentioned in the Bible's Old Testament, appear in other traditional Hebrew writings. In the Talmud, Solomon is reckoned to have been the mightiest magician of his age, and his great wisdom and considered judgment as a sorcerer king are directly attributed to his ownership of an enchanted ring with which he summoned the demons of the earth. This famed son of King David was the ancestral model for the Merovingians of Gaul, who were themselves noted sorcerer kings in the Ringlord tradition. In the same manner as King Solomon, Tolkien Sauron used his one ring to command the demons of the earth, charging them to build the Tower of Mordor, just as Solomon used his demons to build the Temple of Jerusalem. The rings were also similar in that each had the power to corrupt and destroy its master. Solomon's ring achieved his downfall through the agency of the demon Asmodeus, whereas Sauron is presented as his own destructive demon. Along with the rings, 
There are also similar stories, similarities concerning the possession of light radiating jewels with Solomon's being the Shamir while that of Tolkien's elf King Thingol, 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 right? Sorry, Lord of the Rings fans <laughs> in the Cimmerillion was the Cimmeril, each of which is said to be an heirloom of the respective King's race. That is, that was a lot, even just there, the Asmodeus too, man, look upon my works and despair like that story itself is epic so and i sort was... of think i sort of think was thinking how like the when the when the catholic regime took over like um appointing rulers they changed the old stories to like demonize people so was solomon that bad of a guy or was this like a version that came later of him like was the original story was he summoning demons because mm -hmm. they they tend to lend this like satanic thing to the stories after and like summoning demons, demons to me them, sounds right? like he raised his fucking army yeah you know and then I mean? and then they they wanted to be they're the good guys so they were against his army and then they yeah that's sort of what i was thinking too like and that's the thing, no good guys, no bad guys, right? just humans being human. And there's yeah. probably a lot of good guys on all these sides back then, you know, but man, we got, ch that's chapter one of what, like 30 chapters or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean I'm sure they'll go faster as we go a little bit, because we'll get the, we'll have the context more for yeah. some reason. Yeah. absolutely this was like original shock and awe to be honest like as yeah. much as i've read little bits of his already like just going through it subsequently like this was really good and uh yeah wow so and i'm super excited for like chapter two because there were so many things i found that i was like what? i wanted to talk to you about now like i gotta wait now <laughs> and that's all right we'll build up more and also I do want to um, still bring on some other people too with us. Uh, we've talked about that. There's a couple people I have in mind that have already said, hell yeah, to the idea. And I think the discussions might be even longer, but yeah. I'm, okay with, I'm okay with that. I think it'll be great, you know? So Yeah. And if you look at like what each chapter is called, it sort of gives you an idea of like kind of who to bring on and who would fit those exactly. kind of chapters and have some insights for us for sure. Yes. So I think we'll, uh, we'll have a Cap lot of it. fun with this. Yeah. Thank you, Kaylin, for joining me on this epic journey. This yeah, is awesome. was awesome. Glad to have someone along for the ride to help carry this load a little bit. <laughs> Honestly, it's really good to have like a new project that I, just have to like kind of like dig into as I go because I got a lot happening right. in life right now. So it's like, yes, you're it's, it's, it gives me the direction. So I'm not like floundering for things to talk about and stuff. Like I, um, I'm on a path now, so it's going to be good. It's going to keep cool. me going for a while. Yeah, me too. And um, yeah, this won't be the only deep share episodes coming out. I think we'll, I'll put these out as we can get them recorded, you know, same but... for me. Yeah, and I'll uh I'll probably do yeah. my regular kind of stuff and absolutely probably have like two episodes coming out a lot of the time a week and one of these and whatever else I'm doing. So yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. It's, All right. So okay. yeah, until next time, everybody, thank you so much for joining us on this epic quest through Realm of the Ring Lords by Sir Lawrence Gardner. 
I'm Andy Rouse. And I'm Kaylin Gettler. <laughs> See and, you uh, all next time. Yeah. Peace. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places. And remember, think for yourself, but don't always believe what you think. Till next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, pacifaria. Enough, I get the point. <laughs> you meddle with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>